Welcome to the Machine Learning and Healthcare Podcast by Skin Analytics. I'm your host, Neil Daly, and this is where you can hear all about how machine learning technology is changing the world of healthcare. This week, I've got James back, and we're going to talk about innovation in healthcare. Yeah, so um, I'm pumped for this. So we're going to talk about disruption. We're going to talk about, is it possible? We're going to talk about the challenges. So I just want to know from you, Neil, how we should think about disruption. So why is it always seem to be slower in healthcare? What are the challenges? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that everyone knows that healthcare is ripe for disruption, that we need to bed innovation into it to try and make it more sustainable for the future delivery. We all know that healthcare costs are taking up a huge amount of gross domestic product in each country, um, but it takes a long time. And I guess from our perspective, having lived it, um, the reason it takes such a long time is because you really need to think carefully about what you're doing. When you get it wrong, you have these dramatic impacts on people's lives, so you need to make sure that you get it right before you can launch something. And that's really the challenge when it comes to healthcare. I guess throwing it back to you, James, I know you speak to a lot of people <laughs> on your podcast, but do you see uh, that healthcare really is slower for bringing innovations in? Or do you think that, uh, well, do you see it being slower and do you think that's changing over time? I think it's about context here, right? So yes, I do often see it being slower, but I think move fast and break things doesn't work in healthcare, right? You can't exactly just go, well, first of all, you can't stop what you're doing. You can't stop what you're, you can't stop a hospital running and just say, oh, we're just gonna bring in this new bit of technology. We're gonna test and see if it works. If it doesn't work and it kills a hundred people, then we'll go back to the old way of doing it. It's just not possible to do it that way. So the traditional move fast and break things, you know, innovating that way isn't gonna work. So things do have to be more considered. They have to be slower. I think it comes down to that thing I said about you can't stop what people are doing. You've always got to integrate things as the machine is still moving. So you've often got to pull up alongside, do what, you're, do what you do, do your own thing as the machine is doing its thing and sort of prove that like here are the two options and actually we're coming up alongside here doing better. So now's a good time to you know, swap analogies again, but, you know, shift the train tracks and move into our lane. You know, do you know what I mean? It, it seems to me like that's, that's the way that I see it done best. And ultimately, that is going to be a bit slower. So, so let me pick up on that, because I think you said something that I found particularly interesting, uh, that you can't just move fast and break things, the very famous maxim of Facebook in the early years, which they've changed, mm. uh, but I think is is really important way for innovators to think about bringing new technology into industries. Mm. But it doesn't work in healthcare. What I'd say is that potentially we need to start thinking about uh, healthcare products that have impact on clinical delivery and healthcare products that don't. So if you're trying to optimize people who don't attend appointments, which is a huge problem in healthcare, maybe you can move fast and break things. Because maybe if 20 people don't show up for their appointment or don't get the notification, you can adapt that fast enough not to have a significant impact on either the costs or that That's patient. That's a good point. But when it comes to clinical, and you know, we talked about this with the whole idea of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, mm. in that setting, you absolutely can't move fast and break things. And it opens up an interesting question from our perspective, which is, are we doing enough to recognize the difference between a service that involves some sort of clinical delivery versus a service that is just around the healthcare delivery yeah. and optimizing and improving that? And if you're looking at those two things, where do we think the greatest need is? 
you might argue that there's so much low-hanging fruit for optimizing the way we do healthcare that we should focus on that side of things. My counter-argument would be when you look at the dramatic shortage of resource across healthcare and you look at how many young doctors are contacting us each week talking about leaving their NHS posts to come and work in a health technology firm, we're not going to be able to move the needle just by focusing on optimization. And if we can't, how do we get better at testing and bringing those innovations that are impacting clinical safety and putting them into practice faster? Yeah, just on your point, yeah, on the point about do we do enough to separate those two types of innovation? I don't think we do, because actually, you know, even with you saying that in my head now, I can almost draw up the rule book of things that don't touch patients and the things that you should need to tick off and and things for that and the potential routes to go down and actually the things that do and, and impact clinically there's, there's a different rule book of of things to do and you're right there are companies i could name you three or four now that quite rightly do operational stuff to to even out appointments and all the rest of it and you're right they can because actually the what's what's the potential downside well people still just don't turn up for appointments and so nothing's really changed there. It's not as if there's morbidity or mortality that you've got to worry about. And so actually there are those two different ways of doing things, absolutely. And, and you know, I think this is, people are thinking about this now. There's the, the NICE uh, evaluation framework for technology, which lists out the different um, sort of clinical evidence you need by the risk that you bring. But there's no real enforcement of those uh, guidelines. And there's no uh, single thread pulling together the NICE guidelines and the way that things are commissioned and all those sorts of things. Uh, and so I think it's a really interesting discussion. And just recently, the AAC Accelerated Access Collaborative yeah. within the NHS launched the new AI fund, which is, I think, £140 million over three years for companies to bring AI into the healthcare system and disseminate that technology. And a fantastic initiative, really well thought out. Uh, they're really focusing on four different stages of the life cycle of, a, of an artificial intelligence company about gathering the evidence and where investment needs to go to help companies go through those phases. But what I'd be fascinated to see over the next few months as those awards are given is how many of the awards are focused on clinical versions of AI that will help improve clinical workflow versus operational workflow. And uh, I know it's something that, um, that the ambitions are to have more clinical uh, workflows improved. Whether or not when it comes down to the actual rubber hitting the road and people making these decisions and backing uh, companies to disseminate across NHS, whether or not that will actually, ha actually happen. Have you uh, any thoughts or opinions? It's quite a contentious <laughs> topic. Yeah, I don't know the answer, unfortunately. I haven't caught up with those guys at NHS England uh, particularly recently, but... Um I think it, an interesting point that you raised actually was around workforce. Um, I've actually just written a Forbes article, I published it this morning, about uh, there's a company called IntelliCare, they've just raised $45 million, um, I think it's a Series B, and it's for making the lives, lives of the workforce better in the US for nurses. It's, it's in the operational category in that it's allowing them to trade shifts, much like Uber drivers trade hours and all the rest of it, but it's improving the lives of the workforce rather than focusing necessarily on anything else. And I think what you're saying is in this scenario, there is so much to do to make lives better for clinicians with clinical 
types of innovations, i.e. stopping the amount of referrals going to dermatology, stopping the amount of people having to, amount of clinicians being concerned about referring or concerned, so concerned that they have to refer and all the rest of it. You can take away so much anxiety from clinicians by giving them these tools that can do this stuff. And actually, when you're gonna make those types of gains, that's, whilst it might not be the low-hanging fruit in terms of how easy it is to push things through when you're talking about the AAC, actually you can probably cover the furthest ground in terms of a brain retain of all these clinicians that are thinking about leaving. And I think there isn't, perhaps there isn't enough thinking about that, about linking up all of the different arm's length bodies to the Department of Health that think about workforce and actually linking that again with technology. I mean, it is all one big system which needs to be thought about as a big system. And, you know, I worked at Health Education England for a year. I've dealt with the NHS England workforce team. I've done tech transfer stuff I've done. I've worked in the technology teams even within these within these organisations. It's difficult when the organisations are so big to get all that to line up. Yeah. And I think that is one thing that, you know, as a one-man band, I'm privileged here to be able to say, oh, I've worked all these places, I've seen all these things, I know the startups, I know this, I know that. So I can think about it as a single entity, right? And just think, well, if you want to make the lives of the workforce better, equip them clinically to make decisions at the drop of a hat using AI. It, it makes a lot more sense to me. Absolutely, and, and the two key areas of workforce that, that our sort of work touches on, which are the only ones I can really speak with any authority about, uh, the GPs, the general practice, yeah. frontline uh, clinicians, and of course the dermatologists. And interestingly, I was at an event in the Southwest last week mm. where we were talking to the clinical commissioning groups down in the Southwest about how artificial intelligence uh, across the patch can improve things like radiology uh, and dermatology, of course. And a lot of the discussion ended up being around dermatology. And we had a, one of the dermatologists from the hospital down at the event and you could just hear the frustration in his voice when he was talking about these two-week wait clinics that, uh, uh, for those who don't know, uh, from primary care to secondary care, there's a referral pathway that's called the two-week wait pathway for suspect cancer, and patients are supposed to be seen within 14 days to have that first assessment. That's the, it's a political uh, metric of how well the healthcare system doing on cancer in the UK. And across the board, about 30% of trusts in the UK are failing that when it comes to skin cancer. And what, if you look into the detail, that's only half the story because you've got a non-urgent referral pathway and the target there is in the 90% of patients seen within 18 weeks. And across the board, we're at about 80 something in the UK for those in dermatology. So the dermatologists are working as hard as they can and what they spend all of their time doing, which is the frustration that this dermatologist was telling me about, is they see a lot of healthy patients to try and find one or two cancers from all of these healthy patients they see. In the meantime, you've got patients with psoriasis or eczema, which is dramatically impacting their quality of life. They could be having trouble sleeping, they could be having mental health issues, and they don't get seen by the dermatologist who know they can cure those problems or they can help the patients with those problems. They just don't get to see them and their time is taken up with these healthy patients. And that frustration is just huge for the dermatologists. And I think that that is, is having an impact on, on how we sort of recruit and, and task our dermatologists to keep them happy. We're already 25% understaffed across the country, 200 posts are empty across the country. Some hospitals aren't even receiving uh, skin cancer patients anymore. 
we have to do something to try and improve the, the quality of the work for the workforce, as well as uh, try and reduce the sort of burden on the healthcare system. And it's, I think it's a really interesting uh, point to then sort of look at how do you go about bringing these innovations in if we separate out operational and clinical. And I think from an operational point of view, we're both in agreement that, you know what, sometimes you probably can move fast and break things because you can iterate so quickly and improve things so quickly that you can iron out the wrinkles pretty quickly. But in clinical practice, you can't. And I guess um, one of the perceptions I've had from the outside on this side of things is if we're going to bring an innovation in, we should not discount the high level of performance that the existing pathways already have. Yes, there's problems with the existing pathways, but it's wrong to assume that clinicians haven't thought long and hard about it. I mean, I think from your perspective, you did some work around quality improvement. Do you, when you were doing that work, obviously you would have seen a lot of quick wins, but when you're talking to clinicians about it, how much did you come across sort of really deep ingrained insights into clinical safety that designed the pathways the way they were? Rarely, if ever. Really? <laughs> um, it, you, your typical ground floor clinician knows the safety pathways, knows what they should do. In terms of the design of it and where it's come from, they're just executing, right? In my experience anyway. It's it's come down from the top that this is the system and this this is how it's done. I think, you know, when I was doing quality improvement stuff, it's always born out of frustration. It's always born out of repetition. For me, it was repetition of things that shouldn't be repetition, right? It was always trying to find those things which I could solve pretty quickly but again it was it was more thinking back now it's operational stuff it's it's it was the easier stuff from that perspective because there's far less resistance right and so that's where where the quick wins were in terms of trying to change anything clinically I can remember actually that there was a when I was on neonates there was a test that we always had to wait 48 hours for this thing to be negative before I could send babies home and I just dipped my toe into the water of, well, if it's a certain level at 48 hours, can you see that trend at 12 hours and can we send them home at 12 hours? Right. Makes a lot of sense. Goodness me, you start pulling that thread. <laughs> As a clinician on the ground floor, I just didn't have the time to actually pull that thread and do all of that stuff. But similarly, I wasn't connected enough even within the hospital at the time to truly understand and know where to spread my time to actually make that change right? right i think since i you know if i was trying to do that now i'd know far more about the mechanisms necessary and i could devote the right time in the right place and the right resource to actually solve the problem right um and i actually believe that the problem has been solved if <laughs> if there are any neonatologists listening i'm sure you guys are using 12 hour crps now to discharge suspected sepsis but um yeah, that, that's my view on it from a QI perspective for clinicians on the ground floor. So if I were going to summarize that, I, I guess this makes the life of innovators even harder. So from what I've heard uh, you just say is, yes, we absolutely should respect the pathways that are in place and the processes that are in place, but we also, also shouldn't take for granted that there's a whole bunch of reasons key. that these that pathways key. exist in the way they do. Some of them are clinical, some of them are just, this is the way we've done things, we haven't had time to go back and review the evidence to know whether or not we should change something. Yes. And that, I guess that, that uh, if, if I were to try and summarize the way we think about how we augment pathways, we've always seen it as really important as the first step 
to not change the pathway too much, but to try and augment the pathway with the AI technology rather than redesigning the pathway. There's a huge amount of inefficiencies uh, that we can iron out by redesigning pathways, but there's such a huge opportunity just to start by augmenting the pathways. But it, if, you, if you take apart what those pathways are and you start to question why they're designed like they are, I guess you have to, as an innovator, test every component of it and then decide which ones you should really focus on. Uh, and, and again, from our perspective, if you break that down into practical terms to try and make that a bit clearer, when we're talking about augmenting pathways, we're talking about putting artificial intelligence into the hands of GPs so that they can diagnose roughly 20% more of the cancers that they see, and they can reduce the onward referrals by more than 60% uh, into the secondary care, which is gonna have a huge impact. But at the same time, when we're thinking about starting that path, we think about how much more efficiency can we have if we take those GPs who are under pressure and say, well, actually, why don't we let a nurse do this and set up a skin cancer clinic in each GP surgery once a week and really be efficient in the way we assess patients? Um, but if you start thinking like that, how, I guess from our perspective, we always think that the first step has to be the least amount of change to get artificial intelligence adopted, and then we can start to innovate along incrementally along those pathways. How do you feel about, I mean, it sounds like you had a, a real challenge to try and change the pathway in the hospital. How do you think about innovation and how it should be disseminated across healthcare systems? I think the, the most important, well, how it should be done is there should, for, for the decision makers, there should be far less risk involved in changing something and there should be far more incentives to change something that's the way it should be that will that as an exercise and don't ask me how i would do that specifically but broad brush strokes that's what's needed system-wide to do this which is why you know aac all these things are doing exactly that so from a policy perspective now is the time because these things the landscape is changing to drop the risk and incentivize you know as you say, giving awards for, for AI and rewarding the, the vanguards and all these people that are doing this stuff and they might get an HSJ. All, the, all these things are creating incentives to change, which is absolutely ideal. So that, at a really wide scale, is, what, is, is how things should be done from the buyer side. How things should be done from the innovator side, the startup side, the technology side, it's about making sure you actually go and solve a problem, ultimately. Yes, absolutely. And as you've quite rightly said, it's often about just doing that in a small way initially. It's not about going in and saying to people, we are gonna change everything about the way that you do things because our way is better. It's about going in and listening to the what that department actually does, what it actually runs like. Because so much of healthcare and the pathways are nuanced, right? There's so much nuance locally to systems which are pretty much the same everywhere, but there's so much nuance locally that just means things need to be slightly customised and not customised to a point where things aren't scalable, but just an understanding of how things work in a certain place so that the innovator comes in and actually says, okay, I understand how you guys do things here, and this is how in this case we can solve your problems because if we just do this here and do that there and that builds trust and that's what's needed to innovate at scale I think in one singular organization is that if you 
go in and solve a small problem for somebody and you do that really well you start that process of build them building trust in you and building trust in their technology because so much about healthcare is about people um i think if you can go as i say if you can go in and build that trust and you, you're on on the right lines to going deep within that organization to get something to get something adopted brilliant so if i'm going to summarize this little discussion we've had around how to bring innovation into healthcare I think what we've talked about is the need to be slow and considered about the approach, gathering the right sort of evidence to prove that you do what you do. Make sure you actually solve a real world problem. So for skin cancer, it's not just being able to diagnose that skin cancer, but it's also about being able to take the pressure off the downstream secondary care provision of uh, dermatology services that really brings value to the healthcare system. Once you've identified that, I think this idea of trying to find a way to embed it in with clinicians and trying to make it easy for clinicians to adopt and trial it out in small scale way before you then disseminate it across the healthcare system seems to be a good approach. And the last thing I guess I'd like to say is that one of the critical success factors that we've identified across innovations in healthcare is really finding a champion within the health system, within the deployment that you want to do, that is able to really push internally the adoption or the trial or whatever it might be that helps to test the innovation out. And we touched on it briefly in, in your last response. You can see that from a strategic level, NHS is clearly aligning itself to push innovation. The AI fund is a classic example in the artificial intelligence field. They're really putting a lot of thought in how do we test, evaluate, and then disseminate this artificial intelligence technology. One of the critical success factors that, that we think it has to be there, and in fact appears in our application for the AI fund that we're putting in, is very much about finding a way to incentivize someone within the organization that you're deploying it to be that champion. Nice. So that we can take out maybe 10% of their time where they can go around and help get excited the people are going to need to be involved in deploying this and really rally the troops if you like to, to try and realize this benefit and I think rewarding them by having innovation awards or making it part of their their performance evaluation is going to be a key aspect and we keep raising this and we will keep raising it <laughs> so thanks again James I really appreciate that discussion You're any welcome, final sir. thoughts you want to get across uh, thoroughly enjoyed it Neil uh, look forward to the next one thanks a lot Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Machine Learning and Healthcare Podcast and for making it all the way to the end of this episode. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest content around machine learning and healthcare.